You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. So much has happened since I interviewed John Fan, one of the co-founders of Picolage, back in December. We actually spoke the day after Talking Taiwan won a Golden Crane Podcast Award. It was a fascinating conversation, not only about Picolage, but about what it was like for John being in Taiwan when it was one of the few places in the world relatively unaffected by COVID at the beginning of the pandemic, and how it attracted COVID refugees that included some of Taiwan's most talented, influential diaspora. John also talked about how the startup scene in Taiwan has changed in the 10 years that he's lived there. Here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, John. Uh, thank you. Hi, hi Felicia. I uh, just wanted to say congratulations on winning the Golden Crane uh, Podcast Award. That, that's amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You are actually my first guest that I'm interviewing since the win last night. This win is just as much my guests win because they're the ones that make what we do possible. So yeah, thank you very much for that. I want to have you on the podcast to talk about your company, Picolage, because you're in a kind of a interesting situation. Could you tell people what Picolage is for those of them that don't know, maybe people who are not really into like apps or, you know, have a smartphone or something like that? Sure. So uh, Picolage is a mobile app uh, you know, for iOS and Android that allows you to create fun things with your, your photos and videos. So basically it's collages, greeting cards, social media posts. It's been downloaded over 250 million times. And yeah, it's, you know, consistently one of the top apps in the photo category uh, in many countries. That, that's this app, but actually our company produces a, a variety of apps. So we, we have been building apps uh, related to greetings, to video editing, to wellness. So so we've tried a number of uh, different things. Picolage is our main app, but we're, we're also building this variety of apps, you know, sort of related to the idea of making the world more fun and creative. That's interesting. You said that you make apps in that are related to wellness. Can you expand um, on that? Sure, sure. So it's still you know using photo and, and video, but basically the, the photos. But basically, the idea is uh, we have a new app called Washi, which is like a Japanese washi tape, and it's sort of like art therapy coloring. So when you're applying the tape, you actually feel the the, the phone vibrates to make you feel like you're you're applying it, and you know so it has this sort of relaxing effect. This came out of this pandemic period where we noticed that. A lot of people were looking for ways to de-stress. You know, apps like Calm have been doing very well. Uh, coloring apps have also been doing well. Uh, and we also felt like, you know, this is something that we could do to contribute to make people more creative as well as to uh, help them, you know, de-stress. de-stress. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's yes. wonderful. Yeah. I mean, we've mm-hmm. been hearing a lot about like adult coloring books and things like that mm-hmm. as well. So that's really interesting. And your company is now like, You've mentioned 10 years old? Uh, yeah, so our company is, is 10 years old now. We uh, launched our, our app in 2011. Can you talk a little bit about the history of Pit Collage? Prior to that, basically, you know, we were uh, trying to build uh, Facebook apps, and we entered into uh, an accelerator program uh, run by this group called 500 Startups you know, in, in Silicon Valley. And... Uh, they really helped us accelerate, you know, our shift into building mobile apps. And during the the program, we you know we we created 
Picolage, and we pushed it to the App Store. So within the first day, we had 3,000 downloads. Within a month, we had 400,000 downloads of, of this, this app. So we knew we were on to something. The original motivation actually came from the iPad, where you know, we were thinking about, first, from our previous apps you know, that we've been building, we sort of noticed that photos are very powerful. People like to upload and share photos. And then with the iPad, we saw you know, the multi-touch feature as you know, pretty cool. It was, it was new then, right? This idea yeah, that you use multiple fingers, right? And multiple fingers. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't it be great if you could arrange your photos? Um, sort of like the iPad becomes mm-hmm. the family photo album, right? And this is something that people would have you know, on their coffee tables. This is how they would share with their friends and family. Um, or yeah, even so like we, a scrapbook, right? Like a scrapbook, yeah. exactly. Yeah. A scrapbook, we create cutouts, add stickers. And so we, we built this app targeting the iPad, uh, but also made it available for iPhone. And we, we should have guessed this, but it actually was much more popular on iPhone because more people had iPhones. That's where people's photos are. And yeah, that's that's where, where they, they took off. Yeah, so iPad's still important for us, but, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting. We, we didn't think that the iPhone would be suitable because, you know, the screen is so small then, but over time the screen has increased and we happened to launch at, the, at a pretty good time. It's interesting since you said your company is 10 years old for my listeners, if we were to look back and think about that time, that was probably about a year after Instagram came out. So I think it was really interesting timing for you guys. Yes. So that was actually around that time was sort of the early wild west of the the app store. Um, yeah. So, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, Uber, they, they all just launched. And with photo sharing, we saw the need for people to be able to edit their photos and do more interesting things with it. So we sort of fit right in as uh, a way for people to, you know, combine their photos and create better posts for mm-hmm. Facebook and, and Instagram. Mm-hmm. And um, Picolage was really created and set up in the U.S., like in Silicon Valley, right? And now most of your, well, your operations are in Taiwan. So how did that happen? We, we started off in the Bay Area, but, you know, we were, uh, you know, just a few of us. So Just two of you, right? Well, initially just two of us, and then we added a few more later on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it didn't really matter where, where we were. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we actually spent some time working out from you know, Hong Kong and, and Taiwan. And I think you know, partly it was personal that I wanted to you know, try spending more time in Taiwan because you know, growing up, you know, I have a, I'm Taiwanese-American and you know, uh, have cultural links there. My parents are from, from there and you know, always curious about what it would be like, what it would be like you know, to, to live in Taiwan. And so sort of took that chance, you know, that opportunity uh, to work, you know, to spend more time there. And then we ended up hiring people in Taiwan uh, for our team and then just started to grow our team in, in, in Taiwan itself. Yeah. So that was kind of interesting. Oh, but even, even with that, we were still spending, you know, part of our time in the Bay Area because mm-hmm. that is where the rest of the industry is. So that, that was sort of a interesting time. We were spending, you know, several months here, several forth. months there and trying to, going back and forth and trying to combine the best, you know, the, the key parts of both right? You know, finding interesting talent in Taiwan, uh, a sort of a, a new environment. It, at, at that time, you know, startups weren't that big in Taiwan yet. You know, sort of a new wave of uh, software startups were, were, were just starting then, you know, uh, sort of organizations like AppWorks and others had also just been formed. So it was, you know, we, we felt like we were at the beginning of yeah. this new you know, startup wave that was coming in, in Taiwan. 
at the same time, you know, we were uh, somewhat, you know, as much as we could, you know, tied in to what was going on in the Bay Area, you know, and also, uh, you know, whenever we, how, whenever we had the chance, we were working with you know, Facebook and Google on their initiatives because they were always looking for app companies to co-work with. So we're trying to figure out, you know, how to combine these. Yeah. So, you know, initially I thought it seemed like a sort of weird thing we we're doing, but this sort of by location or multiple location uh, startup does seem, you know, at the time maybe it was a little bit rarer, but it does seem to, you know, be, be you know, become have become more more common and maybe even now more so with, with the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. So do you still have a part of your operations in Silicon Valley? Um, yeah, we have some, a few people in North America and we mm-hmm. still have our office. Basically, it's an apartment in oh. in the Bay Area. Yes. Oh, great. So mm-hmm. what was it like for you as a Taiwanese American moving back and working and living in Taiwan more permanently? I think it was really a, a treat. I mean, you know, having grown up in, in the U.S. and sort of knowing, you know, things as they are in the U.S., I, I think it's really refreshing to, to go there. And, you know, in in school and sort of, you know, yeah, I, I'd met, you know, some Taiwanese people so and become good friends with them. So they ended up moving back to, to Taiwan. So when I went to Taiwan, it wasn't just, you know, visiting my relatives, but actually I had a network of friends there already. So it was actually quite a good experience. And then, you know, in, in Taipei, I think, you know, life there is, is pretty, pretty good. As you, as you know, you've been to mm-hmm. Taiwan for you know, multiple times, right? I, I lived there for a while. Yeah. And yeah. so it's, uh, yeah, basically, you know, it's obviously, you know, very safe. It's very, uh, convenient. yeah, there's a lot of conveniences, right? And, you know, you can go for brunch, you can meet up with friends, you can, and it's all, you can do multiple things in a single day. Yeah. So anyway, I, I found that life in Taiwan is very good. And, you know, this is sort of a, you know, a well-kept secret, right? Um, for people who are living in Taiwan. And it's just a very pleasant place to, to be, I think. And then, you know, since 2020, a lot of people have also made that, that decision to come and spend more time in, in Taiwan uh, mm-hmm. because Taiwan has been, been an oasis during this time. What do you think the benefit is of having a business or running a business in Taiwan? First, I would say, you know, obviously there are a lot of challenges, right? Like r- running, you know, a startup in a location outside your target market um, mm-hmm. and also running an operation that is in two or more time zones, right? Because we have people in California and then people, you know, mo- most of our team is now in-, in Taiwan, but we have people elsewhere and trying to coordinate and, and set meetings and everything. Um, but I-, I think in terms of the advantages, you know, contrary to what people might think about Taiwan, it actually is a very creative place. And I think that stems ultimately at the root from freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Taiwan has basically, you know, uh, has a hard-won democracy, right? You know, the struggles that mm-hmm. it went through in mm-hmm. the 70s and 80s. And, and you know, so, so it's both political freedom and cultural freedom, I think, you know, it's uh, very relatively open to ideas. There's mm-hmm. a lot of, surprisingly, there's a lot of, you know, art and design. Um, there's a lot of creative activity, you know, from things like, you know, bubble tea and cat cafes, which were invented in Taiwan, right? <laughs> you know, sort of this remixing of ideas and you go walk down the street and you see, 
you know, lots of boutiques. And it's not just, you know, like the Zara's and H&M's, which are also in Taiwan, you know, on the main streets, but in mm-hmm. the side alleys, there's all these different boutiques and people are constantly experimenting with new restaurant ideas, new, ca- new, new coffee shops. Um, there's, you know, award-winning whiskey, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the boutiques have, you know, creative signs and creative names. So I think there definitely is this latent uh, cre- creativity in, in Taiwan. So I think that's one of the things. Um, another thing that's been interesting about Taiwan is that, you know, obviously, you know, uh, there's the, you know, language and cultural connections with, with China, right? Um, there's, you know, the historical connections with, with Japan, but also the, the, the current, you know, sort of uh, connections as well, you know, both business and, and cultural. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, of course, the U.S., you know, influence is very strong in Taiwan, too. So... You know, Taiwan is actually one of the few places in the world where people actively, you know, a large group of the population actively uses Line, Facebook, and WeChat, right? You know, China, it's all WeChat, right? And mm-hmm. Japan, it's all Line. But Taiwan, uh, you know, many people in Taiwan have two or three of these apps and actively mm-hmm. use them. And I think that sort of symbolizes how the cultural influences are coming in from all three places, mm-hmm. right? And so people are familiar with what's going on in the U.S. They also know, you know, what are some of the interesting apps or some of the interesting, you know, behaviors in, in Japan. And then, you know, there's enough people who are, you know, uh, following what's going on in China or working in China and then, you know, coming back to Taiwan and bringing with them, you know, what, what's going on there. So I think those three influences mixed together in Taiwan. And I think that's also, you know, a environment that's conducive to creativity because you have these, you know, multiple inputs and it's not so clear. Like when the U S you know, you know, this is how things are, right. Whereas <laughs> you, you have a clear glimpse, like there's people who are next to you who are living in these other universes. They're living in the Japanese universe or the, <laughs> you know, or the China universe, right. Their uh-huh. the apps on their phone because they've been living in Shanghai and they just came back to Taiwan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that, that I think, those are some of the interesting things about being in, in Taiwan. And then in terms of operating company, um, yeah, I mean, you know, there's universal health insurance. There's, you don't have to worry about people's parking and things like that. You know, it's a very convenient place. So, and, you know, housing is, uh, apartments are relatively cheap, but the, you know, buying it is very expensive. So right. that's so the situation, rent, but <laughs> rent, rent is, rent is low. Yeah. So I think relatively, so I think that's, you know, those, make for, you know, make it convenient to, to run a company, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one thing that I mm-hmm. thought about, like, um, knowing what your company does is like in Taiwan, they really have this cute aesthetic, you know, like the, mm-hmm. the Japanese influence, like the whole kawaii culture. You right. Know? So I would right. sure, I'm sure mm-hmm. that would be like an interesting or positive influence on your company and the design and what you guys are trying to do. Right, right. So I mentioned our Washi app. So Washi is a pun. It's mm-hmm. like wow and washi. So washi okay. is like a Japanese paper, Japanese paper tapes. So if you go to a stationery store, uh, you'll you'll find these, you know, the, these tapes with patterns on them, and you'll use them to, you know, for for scrapbooks or for you know sticking, you know, taping postcards to a wall or something, right? And I think you know building an app like that. So our team members, uh, our designer came up with with this concept, and I think this also shows you know there is a certain uh, adoption or you know deeper absorption of you know Japanese values and 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 design, right? 
um, yeah. among Taiwanese designers. But at the same time, also, you know, I think maybe more so than people, let's say, in China, uh, that Taiwanese are, you know, constantly using American products as well. So they've also, you know, absorbed, you know, the, the idea of sort of minimalism, right, in, in the right places, like, you know, like more simple interfaces and uh, things like that, which are more common among American products. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so I think there are definitely advantages, but it still is challenging overall building, you know, our, our audience is primarily is about 50% in the US, UK, and then, you know, then the, and then a bunch in Europe, and then Japan is actually our, our second largest market. So, you know, our, our target markets are not the same as our home market. And there's okay. always a little bit of challenge there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So to know like what appeals to them aesthetically mm -hmm. or uh, right. so, yeah. So that's actually interesting. Yeah. Cause, mm -hmm. cause I was just thinking about like the whole Hello Kitty culture mm -hmm. and like how we right. saw very early on that Taiwan really likes mm -hmm. to cartoonize things like a really yes. good example of that was like the mm -hmm. election of Chen Suifian when they had like mm -hmm. the Appian dolls yeah, and the mascots, cartoons yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. where else would that work? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right, in right. World? Yeah. Yeah. Create a lot of collectibles and mascots for, for her for yeah, and, campaigns and it, or cities. But yeah, yeah we, ha we haven't actually created a mascot. We've been talking about that for a while. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That yeah. reminds <laughs> me, right? Like, yeah. maybe are you guys going to be contributing mm -hmm. to all those mascots like the, on the John Oliver right. segment? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, it's really interesting because, you know, times mm -hmm. have changed so much because now there's all these emojis and the Bitmoji. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. actually, when I was looking it up, I was surprised that Bitmoji actually started in 2007. That's what it says mm. on their website. Oh, wow. But, um, okay, okay. Yeah. Right. Before, you know, before, yeah. before Instagram. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's really interesting. So I think now, like, the mm -hmm. acceptance of these, like, cute collage mm -hmm. uh, emoji type things, mm -hmm. like, maybe it's more, even more, like, uh, popular these days. So how would you describe your company culture? Because I think that I've mm -hmm. seen you speak in other interviews mm -hmm. that, it's, that you have mm -hmm. kind of a Silicon Valley type culture. And yeah, could you explain that? And how do your mm -hmm. Taiwanese employees deal with that? But that must be quite different sure. to what they expect. Right. Uh, yes. So I, I think I think the way to put it is that it's different than what they expect, but it's closer to what they actually believe in. <laughs> so what what I mean is that you know, especially when we have people who come straight out of school, it's not much of an adjustment because it's like similar to how they do run their you know their their the school extracurriculars, mm -hmm. clubs, mm -hmm. and things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're we're about you know have people take take initiative on things um where we one of our mottos is always be learning you know as a mm -hmm. startup you know we need to learn about users about markets about you know what products to, to, to build and then you know, learn from our our products and then similarly we really encourage to, to make that happen we need to have our own team members learn as well so uh yeah we recently uh, gave support to all our team members. So basically about $3,500 to each U.S. dollars to each team member uh, as a learning, as, as learning support, basically oh, that they can spend on wonderful. anything they want. To get some training on something. Yeah, like but, some... but, you know, but it's, you know, uh, we suggest that they use it for learning that they've, um, you know, started to, you know, take classes or, you know, already they've been taking classes, but this is sort of a way 
for us to to help support it better, you know, to online courses or uh, to our books, things like that. I mean, conferences, things like that, we've supported a long time. We'll continue to do, to do mm-hmm. those. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think those are some of the values that we, we support. I think in terms of the ones where it's a little bit different and it, it's something more like um, we have no one that says be proactive and over communicate because what happens is that, you know, I think the educational system uh, leads them to be a little bit more uh, passive, right? You know, mm-hmm. there's fewer projects where they're they're asked to, you know, take control and, and run things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they get that experience maybe more in class, in, in their clubs and things like that. So we also mm-hmm. look for people who have done, you know, extracurriculars uh, more than just, you know, take classes. Right. Um, so when they come in, we actually do need to tell them, hey, we actually care about your ideas. You know, we actually do need you to to speak out so and also you know we say you're like a soccer player going on a field don't just stand there mm-hmm. right start running you know look around mm-hmm. see what needs to mm-hmm. be done see mm-hmm. where the ball is see where the other players are mm-hmm. and run mm-hmm. but maybe you're going the wrong way that's okay then over communicate <laughs> just you know, yeah. shout to other people listen to what other people are saying so those are our two <laughs> things we want people we want people to be proactive but also over communicate mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so those are some things in terms of what taiwan um, it's strong yet. I think actually there's a very strong team, team identity, you know, teamwork. So, so basically, you know, one of our models is also win as a team. And I think they're pretty, pretty good at, you know, relatively speaking compared to other markets, the retention rate is, is rather high. People are very group and team oriented. Um, yeah. So th- I think those are some of the, the positive sides. Uh, and that's sort of where combining some of these, you know, Taiwanese values with, you know, you know, the, the openness and the, you know, the communication of maybe a more Silicon Valley style. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. And I think I remember talking to you and did you, you mentioned something like that you speak primarily in English or is it bilingual or? Uh, yeah, so our company is pretty, pretty bilingual. Um, you know, most people speak both languages, uh, but there are some, you know, uh, non-Taiwanese on our team, uh, both abroad you know both outside of taiwan as well as maybe like 10 people in in our taiwan team who are not probably more like 15 people who are not from taiwan uh so uh we have all our official all our documentation is in english all our you know written communications and then our main meetings so all our major meetings are in in english um but you know obviously if it's a smaller conversation with people who are all you know taiwanese they'll speak in chinese yeah And now for a short break. Talking Taiwan is a listener-supported podcast, and we want to take a moment to thank listeners like you for your generous contributions. You make our work possible. As the longest-running Taiwan-related podcast and a Golden Crane Award winner, we are dedicated to bringing you the stories connected to Taiwan and Taiwan's global community. And if you haven't already, you can make a contribution on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash talking Taiwan. How has your company grown since its founding? Because it's been mm-hmm. like 10 years. And then I did do some right. research on you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so okay. I, uh-huh. I remember watching an interview with Ho Chi from Taiwanese American oh, yeah, yeah. in a mm-hmm. 2014. And he said that you had mm-hmm. six, 60 million downloads and now you have two, oh, wow. <laughs> over two, 250 million downloads. So that's, right. that's quite right. amazing to see how you guys have grown. Yeah, so uh, we started. We had four co-founders. Um, we have had a ha, you know, ha, have a founding engineer as well from from, from that time, you know, ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, from there, you know, we sort of grew slowly. Um, you know, so we were, we stayed around 20 people, 30 people for, for a long time. Uh, and then, you know, as we started to, to monetize and also our ambitions have grown larger in terms of, uh, building apps besides Picklodge, we've, you know, built out a new, new team to focus on new apps, um, called Explore. And basically we have now about 70 people and 15 interns. So it's become quite a large, a larger organization and we're continuing to, to grow right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. What would you say it's like um, running your own mm-hmm. business versus working for somebody else? Because I know that you have a lot mm-hmm. of different experience. And mm-hmm. I think for some people who don't really know what it's like, mm-hmm. they may kind of romanticize the idea of having mm-hmm. a startup and being an entrepreneur right. and like all that kind of thing. Right. Um, so first, you know, I, I started more from the research track, like I, I did a PhD and I, you know, worked at like research labs at, you know, Sony and uh, TI and IBM. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and then I, I joined uh, two startup companies. Um, so I, I think in that sense, you know, the work I was doing was uh, in some ways more, you know, uh, self-driven in terms of, you know, like the PhD research and then even the research labs, it wasn't, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was a little bit more, more self-driven. And then, okay. uh, in the, in the startups, you know, they were, you know, fast moving startups. So it was sort of like a mm-hmm. chaotic in- environment. Well, you know, it's a, you know, a dynamic environment. Right. Yeah. Um, and so then, yeah. So then when I started, uh, when I, the, the second company I was at actually was acquired by Qualcomm, um, and so that was a, you know, there, there's a, an exit there for, for the company. And, and then, so I left at Qualcomm and we were focused on just, you know, let's, let's build a few apps. Let's try things out. So it wasn't so much like, let's start a company, but let's mm-hmm. build some products that people might want to use. And right. I think, you know, I thought that, well, that would mean that we would end up, you know, spending most of our time coding and, and you know, creating things. But, you know, as we learned, you know, there's a lot of it was not about writing code. A lot of it, a lot more of it was about, you know, talking to users and, you know, understanding what they want, right? This Mm -hmm. is sort of something that was not a concept to me at that time, right? (laughs) Uh, A lot of it is also about doing all these other things that would be done by someone else in a a company. So I think that was probably the the shock. It's like, you know, just a lot of the operations type of things, you know, until you hire people to do it, Mm -hmm. or maybe, yeah, even, even after you hire people to do them, you know, you still have to be on top of them. Yeah. So that, that was sort of the, the thing. And so it, yeah, it ended up being, you know, having less time to maybe do the things if you're going to thinking, Oh, I can just focus on this. It, it doesn't necessarily give you that at least one of the people. And in this case it was more me, but mm-hmm. you know, like I had to take on a lot of the, these things in the early stages. I noticed on your website that there is a place where you accept user mm-hmm. feedback for on your yes, app. Yes. And I imagine that mm-hmm. must have been much more important mm-hmm. in the beginning and mm-hmm. perhaps you still solicit that. But uh, I, what makes me curious about that is mm-hmm. what kind of feedback have you received from your users that mm-hmm. really shaped the development of the app? Is there mm-hmm, anything mm-hmm. in particular? Um, I, I think a, a lot of it is, so, so first we, 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 we place a high premium on, on user feedback. So this is something that we learned from the 500 startups accelerator program we were in. 
And, you know, it was, uh, you know, so from that time till now, we've invited users to come in for user interviews every mm -hmm. Friday, mm. every Friday. So, wow. uh, you know, so currently we have two, two users, at least two users every week. And we set up a bunch of things that we want to ask them and, and it's sort of our, you know, reality check. Like we have an idea, we have, you know, in some cases it's something that's, we just started and we're trying to, you know, get some early, you know, understanding of the problem. In other cases, we already have the interface or the design and we want to show it to them. In other cases, we've already built it and we're, we want to see how they use it. So it's sort of usability testing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we also do more, uh, directed, you know, research when we talk with a group of, uh, you know, multiple people about the same subject. But as the baseline, we have users, we talk to users, you know, two users every week. So this is something that, that uh, we, we've done in terms of, you know, what they've told us. So that's one source of input. Another is, you know, through the reviews. And, you know, we've uh, learned things like, you know, uh, for example, that, uh, there's an issue. So when people create collages, the collages are stored locally on the phone, but uh, we currently did not, you know, put them into the cloud, right. Mm -hmm. You know, so that they could be stored. And so that, that was something that you know, we kept getting input from users about. And we realized, you know, this is something we need to build. So we've spent this year building out and we're actually about to launch this, this feature worldwide that allows mm -hmm. people to save, to, to take the collages that are on their phone and back them up to the cloud. Yeah. Oh, right. So they can move, um, have access to them on different devices or if exactly. they travel around. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. if they lose lose their phone and it wasn't backed up, or if they switch devices, oh. right? And yes, and then uh, later on, you know, through web or other interfaces, they'll be able to, you know, or on an Android phone, they will get access to their collages. And also, this creates interesting interactions as well because you could create something and then share it with me and I can continue editing it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm sure that's mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. important, especially when it comes to photos, because, you know, there's mm -hmm. such sentimental value when it comes yes. to that a lot of times. And, you know, who hasn't mm -hmm. like had their, something happens to your phone and something gets deleted. Exactly. Or right. Whatever. Right. Yeah. That's great. And I also noticed that you also have a section on the website where artists mm -hmm. can submit their work to collaborate with Picolage. How does that work? Most of the artwork in the app, you know, comes from you know, much, much of it comes from external artists. So we work with people in, in Europe, in the U S Canada, in Israel, in Japan, right. Different independent artists. Uh, we you know, review what they've done and then we'll you know, solicit you know, packs or they have ideas for, for packs or, or, you know, different stickers or backgrounds that they like to create. Um, we also uh, promote them as well. So, you know, they're, they're able to sort of, you know, enhance their, their own reputation by, by creating more, more stickers uh, and backgrounds with us. Uh, and then we give them, uh, you know, we, we pay them for the, the content. So we basically sure. license it from them and give yeah. them uh, bonuses uh, based mm -hmm. on how well it does. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so on the website, it's basically just letting people know that, 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 you know, it is possible. Mm -hmm. Although most of our, uh, artists, I think, are, are more from, you know, we've, we found them in different places, either uh, online or even at design fairs. Oh, so you also proactively go and seek them out? Yes, yes. So we've gone to licensing fairs and design fairs and, oh. and uh, you know, walked around and actually met artists. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. 
So do you guys have big ambitions to consider maybe like a really big artist or established artist, maybe somebody like Takashi Murakami or something like that? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that'd be interesting. Um, we have worked with Sanrio before, you know, and uh, some other uh, larger companies. Uh-huh. But yeah, yeah. that would be that'd be cool to do a collab with uh, yeah, someone interesting like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for um, sure. Do you know Tokidoki? It's a LA clothing brand. Uh, no. With Japanese style designs, but that's not actually a Japanese company. Oh, but yeah, okay. so we we did a we did some uh, we licensed some content from them. How has it been in Taiwan, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, during this time of COVID, when things have been mostly normal and people have actually a lot of people have come to Taiwan as COVID refugees? Um, yeah, so you know uh, Taiwan was probably you know one of the first countries to be really alarmed about covid you know this is you know january of 2020 right yeah. um you know you know, already started screening passengers from wuhan and, and all that and what was amazing is that you know because of the sars experience taiwan put on everyone was lining up for face masks and you know yeah you know being being extra careful and so amazingly that didn't lead to, you know, an outbreak at that time. And so pretty much by March or so or April of 2020, it was controlled just as, you know, things started to blow up around the world. And it basically stayed like that with more or less zero cases, uh, you know, zero local infections Mm -hmm. uh, until, yeah, April, May of this year, 2021. Yes. Mm Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, until May of this year, actually. So that was when uh, there was an outbreak in, in Taiwan. But during that time, it was quite an interesting experience. So for over a year, um, you know, Taiwan was pretty safe. There was, you know, basically no no restrictions. That Taiwan never you know went into a lockdown. Schools didn't close. Like none of that happened, right? And mm-hmm. so people from around the world, non-Taiwanese as well as Taiwanese or anyone with a relationship to Taiwan who was looking for some place where their kids could, you know, go to school freely mm-hmm. or where yeah. they could live a normal life. Yeah. So I met people who were from Israel, people who are from Europe, right. You know, I would go to uh, events at the same event, like there'd be a circle of people chatting and then, you know, you discover, well, you know, one person's from LA, one person's from Tokyo, one person's working in New York, uh, you know, one person's from San Francisco wow. and they're all, living in Taiwan for the year. <laughs> basically, they're all working <laughs> right. remotely or just, you know, yeah, they basically, they found their way. And, you know, like I would go to like the Stanford alumni event and it would be double the normal size because there'd be wow. all the people around. Yeah. Um, there was some people from uh, LA, basically the the founder of Rotten Tomatoes, he organized like these big events. Hmm. And so he would invite people from the tech industry as well as people from the entertainment industry oh, and have this, you know, party. Right. And so like, while everyone else was locked down, you know, Taiwan was having, you know, <laughs> big parties and really interesting events. People were going out all the time, going to restaurants, like it was all normal. Yeah. Um, so that was actually kind of nice because first you got to see how strong the Taiwanese diaspora is like, you know, and like all these really talented and you know, influential people, right. You know, doing these interesting things all around the world, you know, working for Apple or working for, you know, is, is the founder of government uh-huh. is the founder of Rotten Tomatoes mm-hmm. um, Taiwanese or has some connection to Taiwan? Um, they were in Hong Kong before. I don't know his he's, you know, Chinese ethnicity. Yeah, that's uh, but he, he yeah, but he's been 
he was you know living in Taiwan, hanging out in Taiwan for for a long time, yeah, uh, for a while, right? And then uh, you know the founders of Twitch and YouTube, right? They were yeah, in Taiwan. Yeah, they yeah. moved there as well. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so it was an interesting, interesting time. But then it all came to a screeching halt in <laughs> in May of 2021, right? As, yep. as as Taiwan itself basically went to a partial lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of the, the people have left, but some have uh, some have stayed. So that, that's mm-hmm. interesting as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But actually, I do think it's been good for Taiwan to go into this. Uh, to really understand what the rest of the world has gone through, um, you know, we switched to remote work. We started using Gather and Kumo Space and these other tools mm-hmm. uh, for you know not just you know meet in Zoom, but like actually to you know create replicate that sort of a, a work environment where you can move around mm-hmm. and talk with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's been good. We have actually found them to be quite efficient. So even now that we can you know safely go back to the office completely there's been zero cases essentially zero cases for the past month and a half um yeah you know it's you know we we still end up using those tools primarily um and so the office is just more of a place to hang out right now um (laughs) yeah rather than to actually have meetings so that's sort of been an interesting shift and i think it's been good for for taiwan to to go through that because otherwise you know, Taiwan wouldn't have tried, you know, remote learning and wouldn't have tried uh, remote work in, mm-hmm. in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like it didn't really um, have a negative impact on your company. And actually now mm-hmm. you do a lot of your meetings using these apps. Yes. Even though we don't have to, I think it's just more, more convenient because then mm-hmm. people People instead of coming in, you know, five days a week, maybe they come in two days a week, mm-hmm. um, because it's actually more convenient to run through the meetings using the, the, these tools. What do you have to say about the startup culture in Taiwan? Because you've been mm-hmm. there for ten years, so I'm wondering, yes. like, how has it changed in that time? And what would yeah, you say so, about now? Right. Well, so when we first, so, so basically, you know, software startups exist in the shadow of, you know, two enormous industries, right? The semiconductor industry. And the hardware, you know, the, the contract manufacturing or ODM, right? Mm-hmm. The, the ODM industry and the, the semiconductor industry. And they're really big. I mean, the Taiwan is the leader in those two, right? You know, yeah. TSMC is the biggest mm-hmm. foundry and Foxconn, right? Mm-hmm. And Quanta and the others are the biggest. So th- that, that are the biggest, you know, ODMs. Uh, and that's quite amazing for this small island yeah. to lead the world in two very important industries. So I feel like in some sense, software is this extra thing, but I also think it, it's quite <laughs> critical because in the software industry, what you're, what you're seeing is that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, creative activities and I, I think it's important for, you know, Taiwan to, to have this. And, you know, I think Taiwan also has a place to, to, has a role to play in this, I think, you know, because Taiwan has, you know, more political and cultural freedoms. I think Taiwanese creativity is actually pretty interesting. Um, and in terms of what the changes we've seen over this time, when we first arrived, there was very little sort of activity, you know, there were basically, the, the, you know, big companies, but surprisingly, you know, uh, there's also less of a resistance. It's not like uh, Japan or Korea where people are very resistant I think people are, you know, okay with small companies, medium-sized companies, right? You know, there's lots of a rigid, you know, societal structure that people are okay with taking the risks to work for a smaller company. So mm-hmm. we found that that well, was okay. 
Mm -hmm. So yeah, meaning and then, that in Korea mm -hmm. and Japan, people like mm -hmm. the stability of working for like a conglomerate or or a corporation. Yeah, I know Japan a little bit better, but I think that's probably true of Korea too. If you work for Samsung or SK, it's you know mm -hmm. a pretty big thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and in Japan, they've always had for a long time they've had these rules against switching switching companies, you know. So you know, but lifetime employment. Yeah, I think Taiwan is. Is never, you know, the big companies have never been like that. So, as a small company, if you can offer something interesting, you know, we we were able to to thrive by finding people like-minded people who didn't want to work at the, you know, at a harder company and just had a creative spark in them. And we're looking for other people who, you know, could you know could come together and and make something cool. And then, you know, we we would you know build these things for people around the world like that. That's something actually inspiring. You know, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. to be able to to bring these different elements from and to find these creative people, bring together these different elements and then build for the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's, that, that's something that's been good. And uh, in terms of how it's changed, you know, over the past five years, I think there's been a lot more startup activity worldwide, but, you know, definitely in Taiwan too. So you start to see larger funding events, uh, you know, larger startups. So you see like, you know, GoGoRo getting you know, a lot of funding and, and, and growing. You see Appier, right, uh, going public in, in Japan. So I think, and, and a lot more uh, investor interest. So, for example, 500 Startups even has, you know, set up a, a, a significant branch in, in Taiwan now, as well as a number of other, uh, you know, VCs coming into to Taiwan. So I think that, or, or, you know, domestic ones growing larger and investing more in software. So I think that's been an interesting change in, in Taiwan. Is there anything that mm -hmm. you wanted to talk about that I haven't asked you? Yeah, so I think that uh, what's interesting about the Taiwan startup, so I've, I've talked about, you know, freedom, creativity, right, you know, leads Taiwan to build these things out. So I think that, you know, given the limited size of Taiwan's uh, software industry, right, and in the shadow of these much larger industries, I think that the niche where, where Taiwan can thrive is in the areas which, you know, show its it, focus on design and creativity and things like that because um, you can see examples uh, first you know in this in terms of stores like um, Asleet so it's this mm -hmm. bookstore chain in Taiwan which is you know very much focused on you know handcrafted uh, you know items uh, you know design creativity right and I, I think that sort of symbolizes like Taiwan is a place where people appreciate these sort of things right and you know they appreciate you know good whiskey and they appreciate good coffee right and having a society like that you know allows for these types of products to thrive and so on the software side right um you know you see like pinkoi so that's a sort of like it's the etsy of asia and you know etsy started in brooklyn and pinkoi started in taiwan in some sense you know taiwan has you know that sort of feeling it's like it's not the center of things but it's you know next to it and mm -hmm. and it has you know a little bit it's a little bit freer it's a little bit uh more open to things yeah mm -hmm. so i think you know you have that you have uh you know like uh gaga ula gaga ula which is like a lgbt netflix type of site right for for asia and that's also from from taiwan so i think that those are some of the interesting things that you you get from you know a, a country like like taiwan which has these elements, yeah. So I think this is something that that's uh, I think the area in which Taiwan can grow, and I think that that's sort of a healthy uh, 
you know, complement to you know the semiconductor mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. the ODM industries to to yeah. show Taiwan to show the world that Taiwan has this as well. I think. And Picolage is part of that as well. Right, right. Yeah, thank you for sharing that so people can know that there's another side of um, the talent in Taiwan. If people want to find you on social media, can they? are you active on social media? or? Uh, yeah, you can feel free to, to contact me. I'm John Fan on, on Twitter. And one thing I wanted to add was that something that Taiwan actually really needs is uh, people who you know, have a sort of senior level or higher level uh, skills, uh, for example, in, you know, product marketing, uh, engineering management, you know, there's, and that, that's, I think, an area where, you know, Taiwanese Americans or, you know, uh, you know, international people, right, who are related to Taiwan or not related to Taiwan, but, you know, would like to work with Taiwanese companies, that's, that's actually a role that they can play. And it'll be really helpful. I think with that combination with, you know, the engineering talent in Taiwan with the, the natural creativity that's there, but also the experience uh, that, you know, many, you know, Taiwanese Americans or, you know, people abroad have accumulated by combining those together. It can be really powerful and, and make something, you know, that that's much more than the, 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 the just the sum of the two. Um, yeah. So I think that's an opportunity for your listeners who are interested to ha- make a career change um, and, so, for example, we are actually hiring as well. So, you know, please feel free to contact ah, us as well. Yes, go to their website. We'll have that in our show notes. Thank you very much for being a mm-hmm. uh, guest on Talking Taiwan. Uh, thank you very much, Felicia. I've been speaking with John Fan, one of the co-founders of Picolage. If you enjoy this episode, go on over to Audible or Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. Tell a friend about us or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.